This episode is brought to you by Ionic. For more, visit ionicframework.com slash view. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Tessa, and today on our panel, we have Alex. Hello. And our very special guest for this episode is Evan Yo. Evan, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Evan, and I work on Vue and Vite, and that's Great. it. Great, <laughs> so <laughs> that's a lot. I think our guests probably know about Vue, but Alex, do you know what Vite is? Yes, I think. It's the, it's the command line tool that you use to make various applications, and it can bundle stuff, and it's uncomfortably fast. Yeah, I think if you had asked me the last time Evan was on here, I might have described it as like Vue, but fast for developers. But now my impression is it's, it's a bit more like Webpack, but different, like like you said, a, a bundler, but really fast. But Evan, why don't you tell us what it really is or how far off we are? <laughs> sure. So I tend to call V just a build tool because it does quite a few things in a single package. If you think about VCLI, it's it's a thing that's built on top of Webpack with a lot of added features pre-configured. It serves your code during development with hot module replacement. It bundles your code for production. So Vite is something something that's more than a um, more than just a bundler because it's it's opinionated. It's pre-configured in a lot of ways. So a lot of the features that we are used to today works out of the box, like importing CSS, importing uh, TypeScript, or to a framework agnostic extent. Right? A lot of these things all modern front-end developers kind of are used to. Right? It, it's baked in and works out of the box. During development, it's a dev server that serves your code over native ES modules. So it's it's pretty fast. And on uh, for development, it uses Rollup under the hood to bundle your code for production. And we add a lot of these pre-configuration stuff so that it works the same way during dev and prod, and you don't have to mess with the, the configuration that much. So if you want to, say, use Vue with Beat, there's a, there's a plugin. Um, you add the plugin, and it just works. I guess last time we already talked about V1, so um, there are a lot of new stuff in V2. And yeah, so the biggest change is, is, is it's now framework agnostic, so it's not just view specific. It works equally well for most of the other frameworks that people want to use. Super exciting. I've definitely mentioned that to a couple of people who I was like, have you have you played with Vite? And they're React developers, and they're like, oh, no, that's that. Views yeah. and I'm like I'm like no 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 you can use it with React and they're like really they're, they're skeptical because they it's are from... skeptical oh uh, yeah <laughs> I can imagine so what inspired the change to make it more officially agnostic well the the thing here is first uh, I realized we have a lot of these view specific logic inside these which just felt dirty in a way uh, and I realized we will need a plugging system anyway. What better way to test it by integrating Vue with it? I feel like if we can design a plugin system that allows Vue to work nicely with Vite, then it probably can handle anything. 
So that was one of the motivation. The other thing is, you know, uh, I felt like I've invested a lot of time into Vite, and it would be great if it could benefit not just Vue developers, right? Because a lot of these stuff is shared across all modern front end projects. So um, a lot of the it would be a pity if you know we built this blazing fast implementation, but only Vue developers can experience it. I feel like there's really I guess the the I kind of tend to ask the question in reverse. Why why would we want to make it framework specific, right? If if it can work equally well for all the other stuff. Yeah, sort of make sort of the the field of dreams kind of a thing where, you know, build it and they will come so that make it so that anybody can use it and then there we go. Now everybody else will want to use it. Yeah, I I think the 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 benefit here is um there's also sort of a mission involved in that we want to encourage people to migrate to more modern practices, you know, native ES modules, use better authored package formats, ship to production modern by default if you can. You know, a lot of these things you can only achieve by sort of pushing people to adopt new tooling, right? Because all the existing tools kind of are stuck with these previous assumptions that you have to do things this way. And if you change it, people will will be mad. <laughs> yeah, I know at work we're using Vue CLI, and so it's doing the modern build, but it's also when you do a modern build, it still does a legacy build. And so it's I've been running into some issues with that lately, and my I have a personal project that I recently migrated to Vite, and I realized like, oh, it's not it's not dropping in any of the polyfills anymore. This is, oh, this is like way lighter. This is nice. Oh, this is good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you think about Jason Miller just recently tweeted about this, um, about how the, the browser support scene is actually getting better than we expected, where like 95% of global browsers are running baseline ES 2015 now. So if unless you are targeting very specific segments like organizations that stuck on old hardware and can only use IE, right? Most end consumer devices like mobile phones or new laptops, they are all running modern browsers now. So and this will only improve over time. Now that Microsoft, you know, has has completely moved over to Edge powered by Chromium, so you know, future Windows devices will now just, you know, be modern. I think that makes a really good argument for for us to start thinking of our projects as if you are targeting modern, then why why transpile in the first place, right? Dropping the transpile makes your development process faster, leaner. And if you really need to, let's make it opt-in so that most of the developers will be targeting modern by default. And then if you need to support IE11, you can have this like similar to how Vue CLI modern mode where build dual modern and legacy bundles and let the browser selectively pick the right one. I think it's about time that we kind of sort of flip it over to, to do the modern by default thing now for the ecosystem. So speaking of development, I'm curious, after working on Vue for such a long time, how your development process was different for making a framework or library agnostic build tool? I guess the reason I kind of enjoyed working on Veach is because it's it's a new thing. <laughs> so the thought process doesn't have to be 
so so involved like Vue nowadays. Uh, you know, with Vue, the the ecosystem is huge and the the stakes are huge. So if we want to make big changes, or uh, we, we kind of have to discuss it with people first. We have to weigh the decisions in all aspects. But with V, because it's a new thing, I can be as opinionated as I want. So it's sort of a new area of exploration where I'm not sort of confined to some of the existing decisions we've made in the past. But at the same time, you know, also get to connect view to it. So it's kind of like, I don't know, it's maybe a strategy for, for lead view developers to also go on that route. But yeah, it's uh, it's quite different in the sense that Vite is very new, very early. There really isn't too much formal process involved. It's mostly figuring out what we want, listening to early adopters, and um, just shipping what we think is useful. There are a lot of feature requests. So uh, I, I would say at this point, Vite is still very much, very much shaped based on how I imagine opinionated but still framework agnostic and flexible tool is right there's always this very difficult balance point where on the one end is like you make every single thing configurable like webpack right the problem with that is obvious is that everyone has to maintain these very 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 complex configuration files to get the things work the way they want and all these options and configurations loaders they kind of interact and the complexity explodes so if we fold that into the tool, because now people don't get to mess around with it, you can make a lot of assumptions internally. You can kind of simplify things here and there. On the other hand, you don't want to be, say, overly opinionated, say, to the level of a meta framework, right? Say, like Nux or Next is essentially, it goes all the way to how you write your code. It goes all the way to how you structure your code, right? Vite is not that. Vite is something just like sits in between where in between where you probably want to do this in all kinds of projects, right? So, yeah, so this I didn't actually realize this until I'm talking about it here, but I think a good way to sort of explain V to people is that it's a middle point between Webpack and a meta framework uh, in terms of scope, right? It's not as configurable as Webpack. It's more opinionated, it's, it's, but it works out of the box for most common stuff. But it's also not as you know fully opinionated like a framework where it dictates what library we use, what what code or structure that you use. So you can build a meta framework on top of Vite pretty easily. That is what I'm thinking. So then, is the main motivation to go with Vite still like speed of development, or are there other pluses there too that we should highlight? I think speed of the development is what gets people excited and gets people sort of, it's what people know Vite about. But I think that's not just the, the only thing that's going on for Vite, right? I think as a development tool, it provides this sort of, it's just that the, I would say it, it sort of aggregates all these learnings that we, 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 we've gathered while working on Vue CLI over the years and sort of figured out like, this is probably what most developers want. Let's make it opinionated, make it work out of the box so that people don't need to mess around with it. But at the same time, also make it really, really fast. That would be a really nice combination, right? <laughs> and then that, let's make it work for all frameworks. 
Yeah. So my impression for the last few years has been that you keep a pretty good finger on the pulse of what's new in the other frameworks and, and libraries and view alternatives. And I'm curious if you've had to step that up while developing the to ensure compatibility and stuff. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because the only framework that has its really heavy own like opinionated tooling is probably Angular. It just it's really heavy in its own specific things. Like I think it's almost a lot of it is kind of coupled to webpacking some way. I mean, I didn't really look deep into it, but surprisingly, most of these other modern front end frameworks they are all doing just pretty standard stuff, right? Vue and Svelte are probably just the only two that has a very custom file format. But all the other stuff like React, Preact, or these other new frameworks that's coming out, most of them, I mean, the, the worst case scenario, you just write a plugin to compile a specific file format and you can get it working with V. The idea is, you know, the common needs that most frameworks will need is a sensible plugin API, a way to handle hot module replacement. And if you have that and just make everything. So the, the idea here is to try to make the plugin system just work. And that's where Veed kind of, you know, learned from Rollup because while working on Veed's build part, I realized, oh, Rollup's plugin API is pretty nice. It's pretty easy to understand. And most developers can pick it up pretty fast. So Veet's plugin, Veet2 has this plugin system that's a superset of rollup plugins where some of the rollup plugins would just work as a V plugin out of the bus. So this makes it pretty simple for people to, especially if, if uh, uh, say, a project or a framework, it already has a plugin for rollup, then it can be easily adapted to Veet. And also because a lot, most of this stuff is standard, right? Like we're just loading things over ES modules. And if your framework works over native ES modules, then it will just work in Veet. Was the interest in Rollup and like using their plugin architecture because it's a really good plugin system? Or is it because it was already available and you were just like, oh, that works? Or like, like what was your decision making behind that choice? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I've always felt Webpack, while being extremely powerful, is a bit heavy-handed in terms of its uh, internal API design. While working on the loaders or Webpack plugins, it's always kind of a struggle to figure out what to do and where to hook into the system because it's just so complicated. At the same time, while I was working on Rollup Plugin View, I realized, oh, like this plugin API is simple, but it's really, really capable of doing almost everything I need. So when I was, I also really liked how uh, Rollup was a ESM first bundler in the sense that Rollup was designed to bundle ESM code uh, instead of common JS and then ESM, right? So it can directly output ES modules as well. That's an important consideration. So so when I was picking a bundler for Vite, Rollup was the obvious candidate because it's it's ESM first and that aligns with Vite very much. And then in the process of working on the production bundling, writing all these plugins, I realized, oh, this plugin format is pretty nice. And if that can be adapted to 
the dev server as well that would allow us to ship universal plugins. And this idea actually came from WMR, which is the um, the similar unbundled dev server project that Jason Miller created for Preact. The Preact team worked on this this project, which is in terms of scope, it's very similar to Vite. It also had this like ESM dev server bundle with Rollup, but it, it first came up with this idea of using Rollup plugins for both dev and production. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, we're also already using Rollup for production. That seems like a really neat idea. So that was one of the big refactors that went into V2 to make the plugin system work for both build and development. I got to say, it's really heartening to hear that you also have trouble navigating webpack <laughs> it reminds me of the days i was trying to figure out how to write view loader it was uh it was difficult but at the end of the day i was like wow i can't believe this just this worked <laughs> yeah so i was um curious if you could talk a bit more about what what you mean by plugins in the context of rollup and beat and what that how that compares to the system the view dev tools or sorry cli sure yeah so on this view cli's plugging and vite plugging are completely different concepts in the sense that view cli is already opinionated so it just it only supports view works out of the box and cli plugins has a larger scope in the sense it can both add features to your project and also scaffold new code so Vue CLI, compared to Vite, right, Vue CLI does a bit more in the sense of scaffolding. It can like create all these files and modify the files for you by adding a plugin. The plugin can also tweak the internal Webpack configuration. A Vue CLI plugin is, is something that injects configuration into the internal Webpack instance. But uh, in Vite, a plugin is... I guess it's more direct in the sense that you can use a plugin to do all kinds of things. Uh, for example, if you do, Feed already provides this alias option, right? But if you want to do a custom aliasing, you can use the resolve ID hook. Say, if a module requested is named Tessa, let's redirect it to something else. You know, you just return a different path. And then you can use the load hook to load something. So the load hook will say, oh, this is the, the path that we re redirected Tessa from. And now it's Alex. Right? Let's serve let's serve this file. Like, hello, I am Alex. You know? So you just return a virtual file, like export default, quote, quote, hello. You know? So you, you've essentially created a plugin that allows you to say import Tessa, but it actually gives you a string called hi, I'm Alex. So that's a, in a nutshell, that's how a, a roller plugin works. And it works equally the same way in, in Vite. And then you can use the transform hook to do transforms. Say if, oh, if the file is a TS file, let's do this transform. If the file is a JSX file, let's do that transform. So similarly for Vue, we are essentially just adding this transform hook. Say, oh, it's a Vue file. Let's compile it and do all this other stuff and return the compiled JavaScript. Yeah, so obviously the real plugin is a bit more complicated, but the general idea is um, a, a Vite plugin is something that just works more directly into all these concepts that we can, we can think about. Like when you import something that goes into the resolve phase, right? Once it's resolved, 
and we're trying to read the file, it goes into the load phase. Once the file is read it, before we send it back to the browser, that's the transform phase. Once you understand these three hooks, then you can pretty much do anything in Vite. You can redirect things, serve non-existent files, transform into all the stuff you want. Yeah, it's pretty flexible, but also very simple at the same time. I was curious if while you were working on Vite, you thought of ideas or like seeds of ideas that you want to bring back into the view project i think it's um in fact it's pretty well separated while i decided to make it framework agnostic i realized okay feed core can be nicely separated from view but yes there's there are some things in the server side rendering part where i was when i was working on the server side rendering support in Vite, which is is now included um i was thinking oh i one of the goals was to make this work for Vue so that we can use Vite for Vue server-side rendering projects in the future. I was thinking, hey, like if we build something like Nux on top of this, it'd be nice. And then turns out, you know, Nux says, okay, we can just support Vite, uh, which is pretty nice. And then, you know, we have community members that's building higher level frameworks on top of Vite. Say like Egoist already built Ream. He had this previously, but uh, now he just rebuilt the whole thing on top of Vue 3 and Vite. And I think it's pretty cool, Pro probably worth checking out as well. And then I know there are other people like in the React ecosystem, there are other frameworks like Svelte. They are building their server-side rendering stuff on top of Vite as well. So a lot of exciting stuff going on in this scene. Yeah, did you expect it to pick up as quickly and broadly as it did? Well, I don't know. It's in some way I'm always kind of struggling with myself in the sense like if I popularize it too much, then I get a lot more users, a lot more issues, a lot more problems to fix. But at the same time, you know, it's like yeah, this is cool stuff. More people should know about it, and more people should use it. I think it will make people's you know, work work experience better. So, yeah. But but overall, I think we're doing pretty good. I think uh, we're seeing a lot of people talking about it, using it, and there's also a very active community on Discord already building up. So I'm excited to see all these all these cool ideas that's being built on top of Beat. I think we're gonna see it later this year. So is the version change from one to two because? it went from being something for Vue to something being framework agnostic or like why such a big jump in the numbers? Yeah, so <laughs> the funny story is we already went into like 1.0 RC in the, in the 1.0 and I was, but we, we kind of got stuck in the RC because I just felt like we're not there yet. It doesn't feel like while we are working on RC, we keep coming up with this idea. Oh, what if we do this? Oh, what if we do that? And then I realized it would be super weird to ship such major changes in a in an RC increment, right? Like going from RC nine to RC ten, you essentially rewrote the thing. <laughs> that wouldn't make sense. So I'm like, ah, oh, maybe we should just scrap it. And like 1.0 is dead. Let's just uh, card two, so that people know. Okay, like we actually made these really big changes. It's funny because like as I'm working on Vite, I always have this file open called to do and I have a list of things that I, w I think we should have. And then at one point I feel like, okay, we're kind of good. Let's go into 1.0 RC. And then the list suddenly starts growing. I'm like, 
wait a second, this doesn't look right. Uh, it doesn't feel like we could actually sneak all the stuff into our C releases. Doesn't make sense. So uh, ended up being a 2.0. So where does 2.0 leave Feet Press? Is that still happening? It's already running on 2.0. The migration was actually pretty painless. Did it in like 30 minutes, surprisingly. Feet 2 was in fact a complete rewrite. The whole architecture changed. I mean, retaining some of the, of the good stuff. The, the idea remained the same, but the whole implementation was completely rewritten from the ground up. But then when I went to migrate VPress, I guess the good part is as a tool with a plugin system or a, the, the, the parts where VPress interacts with V is somewhat limited. Like most of the VPress specific stuff was left intact. And the only the part that interacts with V needs to be updated. And that was a single plugin. It's like 100 lines of code. And then some code that adjusted how to use the build API. But because of the experience of building VPress with V2.1, that informed a lot of the API designs changes in V2.2. Because I was realizing, like, hey, if we change this API to just work like this, it would make VPress so much easier, right? So, in fact, I think VPress, when migrated to V2, actually got simpler in terms of the integration part. And it's already running on V2, so I'm pretty happy about it. Yeah, I think previously I had thought of VPress as like the potential successor to VPress, but on V, is that still an accurate summary or have things changed? I think it has all the capabilities to do that. It's just we are currently, I don't currently have so much time to completely invest into making it to bring it to full feature parity with ViewPress, but I believe eventually it probably will. In some way, ViewPress has this plugging system, which turns out VPress can um, simplify because it's running on Vite. And if you add a Vite config file in a VPress project, it just pick it up. So you can like directly configure your underlying Vite instance in a VPress project, which I think is pretty powerful, running with a plugin that transforms markdown files into few components, and that's pretty much it. So maybe this is a silly question, but is it possible to use VPress in a view project or ViewPress in a Vite project? Or would that be kind of tough? I mean, I don't see a reason why you cannot. It should just work. Running VPress alongside a view project is totally it's something you would definitely do, <laughs> I guess. In fact, Vite builds its own docs on VitePress. I guess that's not the direct equivalent to what you're asking. I don't think, I think a lot of people are already using VitePress in their Vue 3 projects for documentation. So I believe it should just work. Yeah, I think the documentation for, say, Router 4 and Vuex are both already, Vue 3 compatible versions are already running on VitePress. So where does that leave? ViewPress, like, is it a project that will continue to grow, do you think, or you don't really know yet? ViewPress has its current ecosystem and community, but I think in the long term, I would hope for people to start migrating to ViewPress in the sense that in the short term, I don't want to declare that ViewPress is dead because obviously it's not. But if you're starting a new documentation site and you don't have, you know, very, very strong customization needs or reliance on existing ViewPress stuff, then 
I think VPress will be the better choice in the sense it's lighter and faster. It's also based on V3. I mean, if you need to, the thing is we have some community members, some team members working on a VPress next. So that kind of complicates stuff. The thing is, it's always tough to say, you know, this old version is no longer relevant because there are differences, right? It's not a direct replacement. There are different design decisions involved. Although these design decisions probably only matter if you are using it in a certain way, it's always kind of tough for us to say, like, you should not use something. But still, like, if you're starting a new documentation site, definitely check out VPress and just feel it, compare it to yourself, see if it fits your needs. The the thing which I don't want to say like this will be the next Viewpress is because I don't want it to inherit all the existing design decisions from Viewpress. Like there are a lot of similarities, right? Like the the same way that you write markdown files, the same way it kind of pre-renders stuff. But at the same time, I don't want to want it to inherit all the how the plugins work, how the things work. Like if you say this is the next ViewPress, people will be expecting like, oh, like this used to work in ViewPress and now it doesn't work in VPress. But if it's a, something different, then it makes sense for them to be different. So, so ViewPress is not dead, but it will continue to live on alongside VPress because they have similar features, but they are differing products and have different reasons. Yeah, they, are, they have different opinions on how you customize the, the project. So VPress intentionally keeps the API surface very minimal. You need to be a bit more diligent in understanding the internals, understanding how it's actually just a Vite server with some special configurations. Like you probably, if you want to customize VPress, you probably need to know how Vite works, how, how Vite plugins work. If you already know how to work with Vite, then it will make it much easier. On the other hand, VPress is pretty much its own thing. It, has its very significant API surface and its plugins. And you kind of need to, uh, it's just like Viewpress is just a bit more heavy handed in how plugins work with it. VPress is intentionally minimal. So, like, we don't want to ship all these plugin stuff. Just like tweak it in a bare metal way if you want to, but like otherwise just use it as the default. So it sounds like the migration from ViewPress to VPress, if you wanted to switch, would be manual. Is that right? Yeah, unless you're using heavy plugins. Like, if you don't use a lot of plugins, it should, like, especially if it's just writing markdown files, then it should just literally be a drop-in replacement. Mm -hmm. And how about from V1 to V2? Is that also a pretty smooth migration? It's pretty smooth because most of the... Public facing, you know, the source code handling stuff is almost the same. I mean, we didn't have that many users in the 1.0 phase anyway, so I, I don't think that's going to be a huge problem. Most users who are on 1.0 are super early adopters, and they are pretty comfortable navigating all this stuff. Yeah, since it never really hit 1.0 proper and was always just release candidates, it, you didn't you didn't pick up very many people, so. Yeah, people who are using it in those days are just like really tech-savvy people. Like they dig into source code. They actually figure out how things work. So yeah, 1.0 to 2.0 is probably a piece of cake. Hey, Tessa, your new PB&J topping selector website is really blowing up. 
I wish it came in a mobile app version so I didn't have to bring my desktop to my kitchen every single time I'm hungry. <sighs> Tell me about it. But I don't know the first thing about mobile. I'm a view developer through and through. Oh, well. Are you telling me you haven't heard of Ionic? Ionic? It's a mobile app development platform that empowers web developers to easily make native, mobile, and progressive web apps all in view. That sounds too good to be true. How do I know if I can trust it? Well... Ionic is the technology behind about 10% of the world's mobile apps, including ones from Home Depot and Target. It's also open source, so anyone can contribute. Nice. But what if I need help? Well, Ionic's got you covered there, too, with their premium tools and services. Wow, that sounds almost as smooth as my favorite brand of peanut butter. But I'm no good at design. Don't Apple and Google have, like, super stringent standards on mobile user experience design? Well, that's the best part. The Ionic View library comes with over 100 native components and utilities, including animations and icons, so you don't need to design anything to get started. And Capacitor will take all your JavaScript and package it into a stunning mobile experience for you. Amazing! How do I get started? at ionicframework.com slash view. Oh, I can't wait to make everyone jelly of my new PB&J mobile app. So are there plans, and I may be, I may be asking a big question of this, but are there plans to make Vite be the default way of doing things in Vue CLI? Yeah, so here's the thing, because Vue CLI is, in terms of scope, it co covers more capabilities than Vite, because it also scaffolds stuff. When you add something, you it, it kind of modifies your code, generate new files. I think that part will probably stay in Vue CLI. And the thing is, you know, Webpack fundamentally is just something different from Vite. While we can provide limited source code format compatibility between the two. Like say, if you didn't customize anything, you just started a very, very standard plain project with completely standard usage across the project, then it should theoretically be a dropping replacement. But the thing is, most non-trivial projects will involve something like people will inject custom Webpack loaders. They will use custom Webpack plugins. They will do this and do that, which makes the their configuration, their setup coupled to Webpack. So, so this will be difficult because, right, these are two fundamentally different things. But I do believe for beginners, especially for new users, for beginners, for small to medium projects, it just makes sense to start with Beat because it's just uh, it's simpler. It's more directly to the point. View CLI, in a sense, is kind of more production series, enterprise, where you want a very, very integrated solution. You want scaffolding. You want all the opinionated stuff picked out for you. Then you want to be able to get a test runner going by default. You want all that stuff. So um, I think in the long run, we will probably build these accompanying tools. Like, But scaffolding isn't really coupled to how the dev server or the production bundling work, right? So we can sort of 
you know, maybe find an existing tool or then combine it with Vite. And then we um, figure out the testing story for Vite, which is still something we're working on. You know, how to get Vite code to run smoothly in, say, Jest, or how to integrate with Cypress or other end-to-end test runners. This, these are the part of the work that in Vue C, that already exists in Vue CLI, but is you know, which is just out of scope for Vite because that's not what Vite is trying to achieve. So uh, in the long run, I think we will probably have, you know, it, it's totally possible for us to build something that is equivalent in scope with Vue CLI, but using Vite under the hood. And I, I think that's going to be the sensible direction for us to move towards in the long run. But I, I'm not 100% sure how we would, say, position it as, say, this is the new CL, Vue CLI, or it's just something different, completely with a different name, you know, because Vue CLI now is sort of coupled to Webpack. People assume, oh, this is a Vue CLI project, then I can use these all these Webpack-related stuff, right? If we just suddenly one day say, oh, Vue CI is now a Vite-based thing and no longer works out the Webpack stuff, I think that's going to be creating some sort of confusion right, for the ecosystem because like, people will be Googling about Vue CI and they say, oh, just add this Webpack plugin. But wait, this new version is working on running on Vite. It doesn't work that way. right? So I think this is something we kind of have to consider. But functionality-wise, definitely, we will have something that that's similar in scope with Vue CLI, but on top of Vite. It's just not, we're not sure if it should be called Vue CLI. So how do you balance your time and like mental space between developing on both Vue and Vite? It's tough. Uh, it's probably the toughest problem for me right now. Like context, I, I, like, I hate context switching. I'm really bad on multitasking. Like when I'm focusing on technical problems, especially hard ones, like, I like to be able to just go in the zone and forget about everything else. So if I'm working on, say, Vite, like, I can't just juggle with fixing view bugs alongside the way. It does, like, my brain just doesn't work that way because, like, the context switching would be so expensive. I, it would take me a day to jump from, like, a Vite context back to view context and vice versa, unless I'm fixing some bug that kind of touches both at the same time. So yeah, I'm like similar to what I've been trying to do when juggling between say Vue or router or Vuex is just uh, do focus weeks, like focus on this thing for a week or two weeks and then switch back. I don't know like how that would work in the long run because, you know, Vite is still kind of a new thing and it's also a recent sort of decision to make it sort of its own thing outside of Vue ecosystem. Because initially it was just supposed to be this experimental new stuff for Vue. Now it turned out into its own thing. So I think one of the goals I kind of want to achieve is to probably build up a community and build up maybe a build up a team for Vite so that we have people working on Vite and taking care of it while I juggle between the two projects. And I think you know, there are already people, very active, active community members helping out on the, on the Vite repo. So I re- I'm really appreciative of that. But, you know, we're kind of in this phase where, like, we are just out of 2.0, a lot of new users coming in, a lot of new issues coming in. It's kind of a chaotic phase where we kind of just need to, you know, watch it burn for a few days and see if there's really anything that's urgent and need fixing and Probably it'll quiet down over time and then we can uh, 
because Vue three is obviously going still going to be the the more heavier focus for me overall. I think Vite in terms of scope is more manageable in the sense that with with a tool like that, it's mostly edge cases and there will always be bugs, but it's just like it's not yet at the scale of Vue yet because like Vue has you know over a million users and Vite all maybe has only a couple thousand. I don't know, maybe fifty thousand. I don't know. It's a uh, Compared to Vue, like the workload on Vite is still somewhat okay. If I, we build up more community members to kind of help triage the issues, uh, can contribute PRs, and maybe even build up some maintainers to just like you know handle the daily patch releases, I think that would be a, in a good place for me, so that I can sort of just overlook the higher level decisions and only like tune into specific serious issues when I really need to, and then move most of my focus back on Vue. Yeah, that makes sense. And as someone who also tests multitasking, I'm really glad to hear that there are other people like me in the world because I feel like so much about context switching in tech is more focused on like, I'm really good at multitasking and I'm just, I'm not. Yeah, I feel like multitasking is in some way, it's almost like you're tricking yourself into like, I'm doing a lot of stuff while not actually doing a lot of stuff. Like, I feel like when I'm multitasking, like, I feel like, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I did a lot of things today. But like, when I look back at it, it's not as productive as when I'm in deep focus and solving hard problems. But those are different work modes, I guess. Sometimes I would do this like chore day where just I just reply to emails and do all these things I've procrastinated on for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, speaking of of doing hard things, I'm curious if when you when you set out to build Vite, were you like, I already know all the things I need to know. This is going to be a walk in the park, or like, did you have to learn stuff to build it? Like, what did that development process look like? Definitely had to learn a lot of stuff along the way. So the initial idea of Vite actually started out almost two years ago, like the first. I there's a proof concept called at view slash dev server. It's actually still on GitHub, but archived. But that was kind of the initial like hacky prototype where I was like, hey, what if I I have an HTTP server that in the in the request handler I see oh this is a request in the view file, then I compile it on the fly and send it back to the browser, and the browser just loads it over native ES modules. So that idea came about like more than two years ago when I first learned about native ESM support in a canary version of Chrome. And I got that PLC working and I was like, wow, this is cool. But then I realized if I want to actually do something like Vite today, then I need to solve these like how to resolve two NPM node modules, how to resolve these package entries. I had to kind of build a bundler. You know, there's a lot of things that I did, didn't really know back at that time. So that stayed a proof of concept until until later. Like, I don't know how, but like one day I was like coming back to this idea and I was like, hot module replacement. How do we, how do we crack it for ES modules, right? And I sketched on paper. I was like, oh, maybe this is just how it can work. If this, com- you know, hot module replacement over native ES modules, let's combine it with that view file server thing that I had in the jar, then we have something really cool, right? So that's when I started actually start working on Vite version one. 
And then while test running ver- version one, you know, testing out a lot of different architectures, switch server implementations and all this stuff, finally going into RC and then realize, oh, like we should just do it completely different this way. <laughs> and which led to the 2.0 rewrite. So this whole process is just a constant sort of discovering new ideas, trying it out, fit, like realizing it doesn't work, then try something else. There's just, um, it's never going to be a, you know, straight line process unless you're just working on some really well-defined problems, right? Because when you're creating something that's kind of new, you can only find semi-references. You're like, Vite is something that combines a lot of small problems. It's a coherent, big solution. So I guess the process is like figuring out the most core part, then break down the rest into manageable little problems. Then when I'm looking at those problems, some of these will have existing references, like say, "Mm, this problem, I mean, Webpack probably has to solve it. Let's see how it does it. Uh, This problem, Rollup probably has to solve it. Let's see how it does it, right? So once you go into very concrete, small problems, you have all these existing projects that you can reference. But figuring out how the project as a whole should fit together is always kind of an iterative process. It's very hard to get it right on the first try. It's almost like you're drawing something. You always sketch out the f- structure first, then go into the details a bit. Then you like, oh, I need to move this a bit, move that a bit. Then you, maybe you have to like just scratch, scrap it and just let's start over. I don't, I don't think like for any software of scale, it's kind of difficult to sort of plan everything out. On first try, especially if it's a new thing, right? If you're doing, you know, high level architecturing, it's it's also a bit different because um, you are essentially just putting pieces together to, like, you know, that already works well together to solve a specific problem. But like for V, it's like we don't even know if this would work. Like we have to try, try it first, and then figure out how how to go from there. Yeah, and I feel like I can. I can tell you're really experienced by that drawing metaphor because like most beginners would start with like some very small detail and get it perfect first, right? And then move to the next small detail. Yeah, I think, yeah, because I used to um, do studio art in college. I'm an art history major. So I also draw a lot. I guess that kind of translates a little bit into how I do software development. If I'm doing something, I always try to ask like, what is the hardest problem that I need to get right first. Once you figure that out, all the rest is kind of just filling in the details. But to get that first thing right, you kind of have to try a few things. Be as hacky as possible. Just like once you validate that core idea, everything else will fall in place. But until you have that click, it's uh, you, you kind of have to try this, try that, try a lot of different things. Yeah. So after you've tried everything, how do you go about designing the API so that it has like a really friendly developer experience? I guess that kind of has to do with how you um, position your, yourself as the kind of Im- like how a designer would have to imagine oneself as the consumer, as the end user. Like put yourself in the shoes of your user. Like say, if I am using my own tool, how I, w- how I would like it to be right i think that's a very simple question to ask but it's always kind of difficult for you to sort of 
actually change your mindset because as developers, we're so deeply involved in what we are working on. We always assume a lot of context. Like say when you're reporting an issue, like a lot of people just like say, hey, I run into this bug. But like without all the context around it, it's really hard to figure out like what this bug really means, right? It's similar like when we are designing APIs, it's like I think it's important to, you know, take a moment and cut off all the context that you have when you're working on it and assume like, oh, I'm someone completely new to this thing. I don't know anything about feet internals. How could this thing make sense for me? When designing APIs, I think it's important to sort of be able to change your mindset and just like assume you're a complete outsider and then to to look at it from a different perspective. It's it's difficult. Like it's not always easy to do because like even when I try to do that, sometimes I would assume like, oh, every developer knows this, every developer knows that. And it turns out some people just don't. And if they don't, they will find something confusing, right? It's always kind of, there will be seeing certain things that you will learn only when people raise an issue to tell you about it. But, you know, just try to do it as much as possible. I mean, I guess I accumulated a bunch of experience over the years answering people's questions and issues and stuff. So, so I guess I have a question about, you have the view RFC process for new features, new things in view. Are you planning on any sort of Vite RFC process for new features and new things in Vite? Yeah, I think we are still kind of, you know, Vite is really, really early. It's literally a new project. Up to this point, the decision process is pretty arbitrary. But I think now that we are 2.0, um, I guess it would be good a good idea to just move it towards more community driven and you know start proposing big new things so that to get people's feedback. I think that would be a good start. I don't know if we want to go the full RFC route yet, like because I feel like RFCs are I don't know when you have a big enough user base, but I don't know. Like honestly, maybe it's worth it. Maybe not. Like. For now, I think we can start with something like simple proposals. Maybe it doesn't have to be as formal as RFCs, but or maybe you know RFCs are just not as not as involved as I thought. I think that would be a good idea to try it out. But either way, yes, I think we should start having, I guess, a formalized or structured feature addition process to Vite. Maybe your new project is going to be like a lighter way to submit ideas without an RFC. Uh, you know, just people just do that in GitHub issues anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. So are there any big changes from one to two that we haven't covered yet? Or any other topics you want to talk about? Yeah, I guess the, uh, the pre-bundling stuff. What makes people realize like, oh, this is blazing fast is... Um, how the we, we switched to using ES build for the dependency pre-bundling. So this is kind of an internal change that doesn't like change how you use feed. It just like just makes everything faster. And to explain it, like kind of involves like we have to go all the way back to because feed is an ES dev server. It serves everything over native ESM. And when you have a lot of and a lot of modules, they translate into a lot of HTTP requests. And because HTTP requests have overhead, right? ideally you want to reduce the number of requests 
if possible. For your source code, that's inevitable. But for dependencies, right? Some some dependencies like Lodash ES, when you import it, it contains like 600 modules. And that can make your page load a lot slower. So the idea is we pre-bundle it into a single file so that when you're loading it during development, it's only a single request. But the reason we could do pre-bundling is because we, we only need to do that when your dependencies change. And your dependencies change very infrequently once your project stabilizes. Your source code will probably change every hour, but your dependencies may stay the same for days or even months. Right? So uh, if we separate, separate the two concepts and say, we, let's do, still do bundling to speed up the dev server load speed, but we only need to do it whenever your dependencies have actually changed. Right? And good thing is all these package managers, they have log files. So we just look at your log file and say, okay, like your log file did not change, so we don't need to pre-bundle the dependencies again. And now V1 already did this. The thing is, when it has to do it, it's still kind of slow because it uses rollup to pre-bundle all the stuff. Uh, pre-bundling is one thing. Also, it also handles the process of converting anything that is CommonJS or UMD into actual ES modules, right? So that process can take, you know, similar to how Webpack startup times, when you have heavy dependencies like Ant Design or like Material UI or stuff like that. You know, huge UI libraries usually can take like a couple seconds to people. <laughs> oh, just oh, the length two seconds. Oh, so uh, long. Oh. Two seconds. I mean, sometimes you know, I've I've seen projects like. You know, with with like twenty dependencies, with hundreds, thousands of dependency modules, and it'll take like thirty seconds for rollup to even bundle it, right? So you don't want to incur that kind of cost every time, say, I bump a version of a of a dependency and have to go through this again, right? So we switched that to ES build, right? And in order to do that with ES build, obviously we had to run through all these kind of wild different packages, how packages decide to ship their entry points, how packages decide to ship weird formats, conflicting formats, like two packages, one is importing this A package and the other is like requiring it. All these edge cases, we fixed them, most of them. There are probably still a lot of them out there, but like we fixed most of the common ones and we finally got to the point where, you know, we are using mostly ES build to handle this pre-bundling process and that bumps our previous pro like i have these test projects right the one that used to take 30 seconds to to pre-bundle now takes 1.5 seconds so that's like 20 times faster it's a whole lot of different experience when you have to like every time you start your project you're like let me just get go get a cup of coffee then come back and now you can just like whenever i want to i just start it I don't have to leave my desk. No coffee for everyone. <laughs> yeah, no, no yeah. coffee. <laughs> this may be too big of a topic to discuss here, but uh, how how do you pick what to bundle as a dependency? Do you just look at like packets.json and say, okay, anything that's in the dependency section, go bundle it? Or is it like, are you actually doing like, are you like looking through my source code and being like, here are the things? Yeah. 
So, so this is a this is actually an interesting challenge, right? In the early version, what we did was we used your package JSON as the source of truth, and anything inside dependencies will be pre-bundled. Anything inside dev dependencies will be ignored, and this will require you to always be careful about the dependencies versus dev dependencies thing, which is not ideal. It also kind of also requires you to explicitly include exclude a lot of stuff. Most importantly, this strategy doesn't work well with deep imports, right? Some packages they ship these deep imports, like say import from foo slash bar. So this is a nested file inside a node package, and、um, the thing is, when we are only looking at the package dot json, we only know the top level dependencies. So if we only bundle them by using their Entry points, right? And then at runtime, when you request a deep import, it's not actually, you know, that deep import doesn't have a corresponding ES module file. So the resolver will actually grab the original source file and results in duplicated copies of the module. So this has created a ton of problems. So、uh, we decided to switch to this sort of a scanning model where.、Um, Do look at your source code to find out all the imports. So, in order to find all the imports, essentially do a crawling phase of your source code when whenever we rebuild your dependencies, and we do that with ESBuild as well. So it's、uh, also blazingly fast. Essentially, we are when we are pre-bundling, we do two ESBuild runs. The first run scans your source code, walks it. And on every found import, it will check if it's a node dependency, and if it is, it'll add it to a list of the dependencies we need to pre-bundle. And in the second phase, we bundle all of these as a multi-entry bundle together. So each found import gets an entry file, and then save all the information into a metadata JSON file, which is then read by the dev server. Now. The dev server, whenever a request comes in, the dev server will check if this is a pre-bundled entry in our metadata. If it finds a corresponding one, it will then redirect the request to that pre-bundled file instead. Yeah, there's a lot of、uh, pretty, pretty complicated stuff going on in there. <laughs> that's、uh, yeah, no, that sounds like very, very complicated, very exciting, cool things happening in there, though. So. Awesome. Yeah. Any last questions or things we want to talk about? I mean, I can always bring up the controversial question. So, when are when are we getting a migration toolkit for Vue three from Vue two to Vue three?、Oh, I thought you were going <laughs> to say release date. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be this. This still gonna take a while because、uh, obviously we spent quite a bit longer than V on Vite than we hoped. You know, the whole two point oh process was. Essentially, sort of added on, because originally we were planning to call it 1.0 and be done with it. But it turns out there's just so much things to gain from the 2.0 refactor, and it ended up being a whole two months long project. But I think it's going to be worth it. It's going to be making all view devs and maybe even other framework devs' lives better in the future. So I think it's a it's a worthy investment, but. As I mentioned, now my goal is to 
set up a community and team structure for Vite so it can sort of take care of itself in the short term while I focus back on Vue. Yeah, so the, the migration stuff is obviously going to be the, the thing we're going to be mostly working on next. So I guess I have two last questions. My first question is, what are your thoughts about using only composition API and no Vuex? And if you ever listen to music while you're coding, what kind of music do you listen to? So using only composition API without Vuex is totally viable if you don't, I mean, especially when we still don't have DevTools integration for Vuex next yet. For especially for simple projects, right? Vuex is somewhat a mix between state management and data fetch caching at the same time. You know, with Composition API, there are some different patterns that you can use. Something like in Red Hook's world, there's like SWR and React Query. I think they're already equivalent using View Composition APIs. In, in a lot of cases, some, you probably want something more towards a data fetching plus caching plus shared state solution rather than something we call like state management. State management is something, you know, in, uh, the name, the, the, the term state management sort of entails there's, there's a structural benefit. There is a convention benefit to it. Like you are intentionally writing more structured and verbose code in return for predictability. So that's what Vuex is sort of involved around. But at the same, but for a lot of projects, people maybe they're like, we don't care about like this sort of being more verbose stuff. We just want to write simple code, but we still need to deal with fetching some data, saving it somewhere, and then being able to use it in multiple components, right? This is a common problem that almost every project needs to deal with. With Composition API, I believe it's pretty straightforward to do that. But obviously, there are problems involved when it comes to server-side rendering. What we hope is the value of Vuex, especially the next version of Vuex, is that it provides you with this, um, first, it's structured and convention. The second is, you know, when you use Vuex, you, get, you have all these associated best practice for SSR handled for you as well. So if you just write idiomatic Vuex code, your, your stuff will just work. Um, you don't have to worry too much about it. Like if you're doing something completely custom, you might have to worry about oh, like will this work? The server rendering, will this, will that work? But I do believe like the necessity of Vuex is reduced, especially in small projects for Vue three. If you can't handle your your case with just Composition API, then I would say that's totally fine. Uh, I listen to a lot of different things, to be honest. Yeah, I, I could probably save this to the pick, but uh, there is an artist that I really like recently. Name is Lexi Liu. Lexi is L-E-X-I-E. So if you Google her, her um, she just recently dropped a new EP, I think, which is really cool. I listened to it while I was working on Beat. <laughs> um, yeah, and other times I would listen to some, like... You know, cafe background music, like slow jazz piano is my favorite. Bill Evans is a, an artist that I, you know, cycle a lot. Very cool. So with that, where can people find you on the internet? My Twitter handle is Y-O-U-Y-U-X-I. 
that is my Chinese spelling of my Chinese name and GitHub, I am YYX990A03, which is my middle school student number. A lot of people ask me that question, so I kind of have to explain it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, that's that's two of the places that I'm most active on. Great. I, I hope all the listeners memorized that, but if you didn't, there will be links in the show notes. And now it's time to move on to this week's picks. So I ran across a thing this week that I am both extremely excited about and mildly embarrassed about. They have come out with a thing called Fruity Pebbles Crisps. They are little like circular rice cake things that are Fruity Pebbles as a potato chip, essentially. They're amazing. They are as glorious as you would expect them to be, like fully full of sugar and just like delicious Fruity Pebble taste. And they are also like horrifying because you're like, why does this exist? <laughs> so I have I've I found out about them and an hour later I had a bag of them because I was just so excited that they existed. So that is that is the pick that I have this week. Also fascinated that they called them crisps and not chips. Like are they making fruity pebbles biscuits next, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, and they have them in other flavor. They have like cocoa pebble crisps and they have like honeycomb crisps and they have Wait, are there kooky yeah. crisps yeah i think oh, so weird yeah okay and evan what picks do you have for us this week i just recently tried a game called uh, curse of the dead god so uh, i've actually been playing um another game called hades i don't know if I don't know if people have heard of it, but Hades is. I've seen your tweets. Yeah, I've been um, I've been competing. In yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody on I don't think anybody on this podcast has ever played Hades before. Ever, you're probably the first person. I'm actually the only one okay. who hasn't played yeah. it. I, I hope some some of the readers. sorry. Go ahead. Nice. Yeah. So Hades is a roguelike, but it's an action roguelike. So like you you run around hack and slash, but. Every room is randomized, so you don't know what's going to happen next. So every run is like different. It's a pretty fun Hades is a pretty fun game. I've been competing with Vijux. He's the he's a React core team member. Now I think he's working on React Native. Like we've known like each other on the internet for a long time, but like he's also he's a pretty hardcore gamer. We we actually talked about our pre like our crazy World of Warcraft days. Uh, in the past but like he's super hardcore but anyway like we've been in this little like speed run context for a while and like it's been pretty fun hades is a highly recommended game but it's like probably quite popular already and then recently there's another one called curse of the dead god it's also a action an action route like but it's a bit it's a different combat style it's also pretty cool but it's also extremely hard like Pretty hard. It's almost like Dark Souls, but in a rogue-like, Diablo-like setting. It's pretty cool. All right, and I guess that brings us to my picks. So my first pick is So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijima Oluo. It's actually a pretty short read. I finished it before Minor Feelings, which I mentioned a couple weeks ago, and a bit more prescriptive, like Minor Feelings is more experiential. So if if that sounds interesting, check that out. 
I also had to clean my room recently and rediscovered that I own a copy of this anime called Birdie the Mighty Recode, which came out a while ago, and I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to rewatching it. And uh, another, another ancient pick, a friend of mine on the show before, Felix, he had this childhood dream, or maybe college dream, of becoming an expert in this super old game called Panel de Pond. And it's available on Nintendo Switch for online co-op through the Super NES collection, which is free. And it's basically kind of like competitive Tetris or any of those other kind of line building puzzle games. And my final pick, it sounds really silly, but I got a uh, electronic soap dispenser on a whim because it had a character I really liked, uh, Ryan from Kako. And... I just, I guess I never realized how much energy and joy it sucked out of my day to have to push the pump on my old foaming soap dispenser. And now that I just put my hand under it, it gives me soap. I feel so happy every time. Yeah, my wife got one too, but but the battery goes like it just malfunctions so often. <laughs> like we ended up going back to the manuals. So I guess we need to find a better oh, one. Oh no! Yeah, I guess if if mine lasts for a month, I'll I'll let you know and you can check <laughs> <Okay>. it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then just wanted to follow up on a couple of, of old picks. We had debated on the show whether a certain sticker maker went by So Splush or SOS Plush. And I have confirmation. Alex is, is on the edge of his Tell seat. Tell me. Yeah, I am on the edge of my seat. It's so Splush. So Splush. Yeah. Yes. And also just uh, wanted to update that the wooden hairbrush is still working out very well. It's probably the longest streak of enjoying a hairbrush that I've I've had. I probably need to get one of those. <laughs> I, I see you also have hair, Alex. I do. I have hair. It is it is on my head. <laughs> and that's all for this week's episode. If you aren't following us on Twitter, head on over and find us at Enjoy the Viewcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the show if you aren't already. And if you have time, leave us a review. And finally, remember to tell at least one friend what you found interesting about feet. Thanks for listening, and until next time, enjoy the view. Bye!